So I don't know if you noticed it, but in the, uh, the papers recently, they're starting to talk once again about the declining birth rate in the United States. We are definitely not in the midst of a baby boom in our country. Uh, the latest government data revealed that from in 2011, there was just 4 million births in the U.S., and though that might seem like a lot to you, that was actually down 1% from 2010, which means 40,000 less births in the United States. This was the smallest number of U.S. births since 1998, and it was across the board, white, black, and Hispanic. And as a result of this, our nation's general fertility rate is at an all-time low, about 63 births per 1,000 women ages 15 to 44. And though the good news, kind of the silver lining in all of this, is that one of the reasons it's dropping so much is because of the fact that there are many less teenage pregnancies. That, that somehow the message and things are getting through with our teenagers, and so teenage pregnancy rate has dropped tremendously. But this is a concern for our country because the replacement rate, I don't mean to be crass about it, but the replacement rate for our country is about 2.1 children per woman, and right now we're at about 1.89 children per woman. So we're behind the gun when it comes to that. And we know a little bit about why all of this is happening. It has nothing to do with population. It has to do with the fact, and you all see this, that women are putting off getting married until later in life, and as a result of that, are also putting off having children until later in life or not at all. And so it's interesting, as we've seen a drop in the overall birth rate, when it comes to women in their late 30s and 40s, we've actually seen an incline. It's gone up in the birth rate in the last 10 years among women of that category. And I experienced this when I was home in Cleveland for my break in July. I, I looked up some of my old friends, and one of my best friends from third grade, who's my age, shared with me that he and his wife were expecting their first child together. Folks, look at me. He's expecting his first <laughs> child together. And, and, and I said to myself, so, you know, I turn 50 next year. I assume we're the same age. And he said, yeah, and I said, and he married somebody a little bit younger. You know, his wife is 39, and he's 49. But I couldn't help smile as I thought about him, and here's my mental picture. I thought of him in the year 2035 when he is 71 years old and his kid's graduating from college. And I just thought, wow, that, that's God. I don't even want to go there. And, 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 and I know my friend's an outlier. I mean, I know that's not the norm. But what we need to realize is that this is happening more and more as people put off having children or don't have them at all. And obviously my point in all this is not to suggest that we should convince those who don't want to have kids to have kids, because I don't think that is the answer, that that will create more problems than not. But one of the things that I do hear from people younger than me when they say, and I kind of question why they don't want to have kids, and I, I love this answer, is that they tell me that they have looked at other people who have kids and they cringe and they declare that they can certainly wait to have their own children. I hear it quite often. In fact, my oldest daughter, who is 23 and teaching kindergarten full-time, came home the other day and said, after a full day with 32 kindergartners, she said, I'm in no hurry to have kids. <laughs> and I kind of smiled, and I get it. And yet here's where it gets tender. You and I both know the answer to that common response that we hear from people as to why 
They don't want to have kids when they see what those of us who have kids go through. And the obvious common answer is when they're your own kids, it's a game changer. When they're your own kids, you're just not going to see it the same way. That when they're your own kids, it's not the same as having a, a class of 32 kindergartners or, or visiting your friend who's overwhelmed with diapers and kids in the apartment that you just visited. When they're your own, it's different. We experience that in other aspects of life. I, I traveled a bit this week to Chicago for a, a ministry event, and I rented a car from Enterprise. Let me tell you, I didn't treat that car the same way I treat my own car. Are you that way? When I stay in a hotel room, I don't treat that hotel room the same way that I treat my house. I mean, I don't beat on it. It's just that I have a different mindset. And in a much more tender, profound, personal, and powerful way, when it's your own children, whether through natural birth or adoption, there's no comparison to other children. You almost certainly view and respond to your own kids in a way that you can never respond to anybody else's. And this is not a bad thing per se, not at all. And it doesn't mean that you won't be kind and gentle with other people's children. Of course you will. It just means that there's something hardwired in us. I would argue from creation about having our own children that softens us and touches us in the deepest recesses of our hearts. It's a game changer when you and I have our own kids, and I believe God designed us that way. Now, the reason that this is so important for you and I to recognize this morning is that God says it's the same thing with him. Isn't that interesting? He says it's the same thing with him. You see, God does not say that all of creation right now are his children. He does say that all of creation are his creation, and the closest thing he comes to calling all of creation his children is found in Acts 17 when he says that we are his offspring But at best, God says we are renegade offspring, right? We're separated offspring. We're offspring that, that have gone our own way and are separated from God. And so somehow, part of the trick of life is to come back into a right relationship with God. And God says that when you do not that, and I don't miss this, when you come to faith in Christ and your sins are forgiven and you've made peace with God, he smacks the label upon you that you're now his son or daughter. You're now his child. I mean, what he comes close to calling you when you were kind of doing your own thing, but you got a kind of picture you weren't living in his home, you weren't close to him. Now that you are his in Christ, he has no problem saying that you're my kid, you're my child, and you will never be the same again. Because I will see you differently, God says, and you will see me differently. So as we continue on in the book of Galatians, we're going to finish up chapter 3 this morning. It couldn't be more clear in verse 26 when it starts this way. Look up here on the screen. Cactus and venue, look up on your screen. It says, for in Christ Jesus, now here it is, you are all sons of God through faith. You are all sons of God through faith. Now again, I know how some of you are thinking, you're thinking, well, why does it say sons? Why didn't it say sons and daughters of God? Well, some translations have actually translated it that way. If you look at the New International Version 2010 edition, they've changed it to sons and daughters. But, and, and, and here we need to recognize, it is inclusive of men and women here. I mean, when it says sons of God, it is saying sons and daughters, children of God. 
One of the reasons, however, more conservative translations leave it as sons, and I think it's right to, is because in the first century, when they used the Greek word for son here, it was trying to communicate something to men and women, and that is that in Greek culture, in Hebrew culture, if you were a son, you were highly esteemed. You were highly favored. You had a special place in the eyes of a father through being a son in that male-dominated society. And so it's, no, it's not, not a coincidence that the author here, inspired by God, is saying sons of God, but he's obviously including women as well. But he wants you to know that even as a daughter of God, you've got a special place in your relationship with God that in that culture would have only been reserved for sons. Now, obviously, the question becomes at this point, well, then what are some of these special places? What are some of these benefits that you and I have from being a child of God? Or more simply put, if I've named this message here, never the same again, how in the world are we never the same again now that God calls us his sons and daughters? Three things that I want you to notice in our time remaining. Three things that Galatians 3 will go on to say in the three remaining verses of chapter 3 that can make our walk with God never the same again. And these things are de facto true about us by being his children. So here's the first one. As a child of God, you have a new identity. Man, this is going to encourage you today. As a child of God, you have a new identity. And namely, your identity now, whether you feel it or not here this morning, if you're a believer in Christ, your identity is one of being a highly beloved son or daughter of the almighty and only creator God. That's who you are. And that's how all of heaven sees you. And so look at verse 27, and you'll see what I mean. Again, it's in the context here of declaring that we are all sons and daughters of God for those of us who have come to Christ. And then look what verse 27 says. It says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now, there's two things in this passage that you're going to want to dial into. One very quickly, and then we're going to spend more time on the other one. Very quickly, it says, As many of you as were baptized into Christ. Just suffice it to say, what it's referring to there is the fact that when you became a believer in Jesus Christ through faith, obviously a next step, and we teach this here at Scottsdale Bible, is that after you come to faith in Christ, you get baptized. Because water baptism is a sign and symbol of the faith that you already have in Christ. It's a response to saving faith. At Romans 6, it says that baptism is a symbol of Christ going down into the grave as you go down in the water and then rising up out of the grave as you come up out of the water, symbolizing your union with him, but it doesn't save you. It's your faith in Christ that you've already had that saves you. And the reason we know that's true here in Galatians 3 is because it uses the word faith, pistuo, 13 times in chapter 3 and baptism only once. So obviously you can't be saying here that baptism saves you. It's just saying that when you were baptized in Christ as a response to faith, now here's the main point of this passage, you put on Christ. You put on Christ. And this is where your new identity is now seen. That two-word phrase, put on, i got to tell you folks, is loaded with meaning. It's one Greek word in the original language that Galatians was written in, and it was a very, very common everyday word back then. It simply means to clothe, to dress oneself. So it denotes the everyday activity that you wake up without many clothes on. We won't 
run with that thing, but you wake up without many clothes on, and one of the first things you do in the morning, thankfully, is you put on some clothes, some garments to clothe yourself. That's what this word means. But when used in this spiritual context here to refer to our union with Christ through faith expressed in baptism, I got to tell you, it explodes with meaning and profundity. Uh, to show you this, I want to share with you some other New Testament passages that use this exact same phrase, put on, and use it based on the exact same Greek word that was used 2,000 years ago here. And as I read these three passages to you, see if you can pick up what maybe your new identity is now as a child of God. So first, look at Colossians 3, verses 9 and 10. It says, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, here it is, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So you put on a new self here, and you will notice that this allows you to have power over your old self and the old practices, such as lying, that God doesn't want you to do now. So your new identity in Christ, don't miss this, is one that gives you power to live for him. Power even over the things that seem to always get you down. Now hang on to that and look at Ephesians 6 verse 11. It says, put on, same word, the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So in Christ, we again put on an outer armor. This context will go on to talk about things like faith and righteousness, truth and peace and prayer. And all these things don't miss. Protect us in our daily walk with God. So we're not just empowered in our new identity, but we're also protected as we put on Christ and his armor. And then, as if this were not enough, look at Romans 13, 12. Again, using the same word, it says, the night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness, now here it is, and put on the armor of light. Uh, The word light in the New Testament is always used to be that which gives direction and purpose, just like you and I use a light now. You're driving home late at night, you turn on your headlights so you can see. You're walking on a dark path, you have a flashlight so you can see. Light is that which gives us direction and purpose in our travels. And it's saying the same thing here for you spiritually. That when you put on Christ, when you became his child, man, you got now direction in your life. You have purpose in all that you're doing. So add it all up. Just a little everyday Greek word. We translate put on, but now used in highly charged spiritual context to let us know that when we put on Christ in our new identity, we now have an identity of power, protection, and purpose. I'm telling you guys, you are not the same anymore. You'll never be the same again. As a son or daughter in Christ, You now have such a profound new identity to live from that you have no excuse for not having power over the things that ail you, protection from the things that seem to defeat you, and purpose and direction when you feel most lost and directionless. And you thought that being a child of God didn't have its benefits. You know, years ago, J.B. Phillips, who was a translator of the Bible, wrote a little devotional book called Your God is Too Small, just a little, little book. And in one of the earlier chapters, the chapter was called Parental Hangover. 
And he was talking about people who were raised in homes where maybe they didn't get all from mom and dad that God wanted them to get. Some of you maybe can relate to that. Dad was maybe distant, mom was maybe unavailable, maybe not very nurturing, dad wasn't very protecting, and so you felt alone a lot as a child. And what Phillips was trying to, to get at in this chapter is that then you come, become a Christian and you hear that God is your father and you have trouble making sense of that because you never really had good modeling of what a father is. And obviously the point of Phillips in this little chapter, Parental Hangover, is to lift our sights and say whether you had good parenting or not, God is your father, he is good, and you can now relate to him as father because you're his child. I remember reading that years ago, and as some of you know, I, I went through a rocky period with my own dad when I was a young man. I, I, I felt when I was a child, my dad was very overbearing, and I did feel he was distant, and, and so as a young man trying to figure all that out and find my way, I, I, I kind of resented that. And so I went through some rough patches in the 90s with my own earthly father, and uh, about the end of the, the century, about the turn of millennium, my dad and I started to make peace with each other and kind of had a, a renewed relationship for the last 10 or 15 years. And just this past week, we were on the phone, and we were talking about the church and, and kids and all the things going on, and mom's going in for knee surgery and all the things going on in our lives. And, and, and I had such a wonderful conversation with him. And, and I hung up having known about this sermon, and I thought, you know, over the years, I, I really have learned to take strength in my relationship with my dad. I, I feel like he, he really is kind of protective of me as pastoring a large church and the question he asks. And you know, he really does help me with direction now when I need wisdom on certain things. I, I thought I've really come full swing to the point where in my earthly father, with my earthly father, I, I, I can see that power. I can see that protection. I can see that purpose. And then this thought hit me, and it's the only thought that should hit me at this point. I thought, my gosh, if that's just a little taste of how I experienced it with my dad, imagine what God must be like. Imagine what God must be like when he comes along and says, even the best earthly relationship with father and son or father and daughter is nothing compared to what I want to be for you. And I got to tell you, that charged me up. I was in Chicago for the last three days at, at board meetings, spelled B-O-R-E-D. I was at board meetings for the, the last three days. And as I was thinking about all of these things, I was just kind of flying high in my spirit just thinking about God and how good he is and how he really is my source of power, my source of protection, my source of purpose. That's true for you too. It's true for you in Christ that if you're his child, and you are if you've come to Christ, he says you are now primed to have a new identity, one built upon power, protection, and purpose. Now, we need to move on because there's more being taught here, and it's really good stuff. And so notice with me a second thing, and we're going to kind of switch gears here, that God says is now true of us based upon being his child, and that is that as a child of God, you now have a new identity. I mean, I'm sorry, a new unity, a new unity. And so look with me at how Galatians 3 goes on to share this. Again, don't forget the context of being his sons and daughters. Look at verse 28. It says there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, you got to dial into this. This passage has actually come under a lot of attack and actually a lot of misinterpretation 
over the last 100 years in American evangelicalism. And you say, how? Well, this passage has actually been used as a proof text by some well-meaning Christians and scholars to argue for egalitarian gender equality or even the diminishing of traditional sexual values. And they argue that it says here, hey, there's no more distinctions anymore between male and female. And so those things are gone. So in Christ, we're completely freed up. And we need to jettison all this traditional stuff that's kind of holding us back. And though that might be for a, a different sermon and a, and, a, and a different argument, what I need you to see here today, and this kind of cuts through all the stuff, is that that's not the purpose of this passage at all. I, I mean, the point of this passage is not to argue for sameness, it's to argue for unity. It's not trying to argue for a lack of distinctions among God's people, but for a lack of divisions among God's people. And we know, without a doubt, that this is the case because the same writer, Paul the Apostle, will go on in other of his writings, and even here in Galatians, to say there are substantive distinctions and roles between men and women, and that there is such thing as a Jewish identity and a Greek or Gentile identity, and they're both legitimate, and you should keep them. And so we know that Paul the Apostle, who penned these words, believed in distinctions. He believed in separate identities. So what he has to be saying here is, is that irregardless of whether you're Jew or Greek, male or female, slave nor free, your unity is found in your shared faith in Jesus Christ, not in cultural, class, or gender distinctions. And so I love how Tim Keller in his small little commentary on Galatians says it. You'll like this. Look up here on the screen. He says, and I quote, we are not all identical or interchangeable, but we are all one. What this passage means is that I am a Christian before I am anyone or anything else. That's the point. And folks, all I can tell you is that when you finally understand this, and when people stop bickering about some of the side issues of this passage, when you understand that this passage is telling us that as a child of God now, our unity as a church, and with any other Christians you know, is now found in Jesus Christ and nothing else. I'm telling you, it will forever change the way you do church. It will forever change the way you relate to those around you. Because no longer... Are you going to find your unity in things like music or in things like maybe programs that you happen to share with somebody else? You like this ministry and they like this ministry or maybe particular passions you have or a particular way of doing church or, or whatever Christians tend to find the unity in or most sadly, even in the fact that we're of the same culture and socioeconomic class and yuck, all of that. You're not going to find your unity in any of that. You're going to learn to find your unity only and always in the fact that you know Jesus Christ and that the person that you're in relationship knows Jesus Christ and therein lies our unity, period, pause, end of story. So our strength, our fellowship, our love, and our witness is drastically affected by this passage. You know, one of the reasons that this is so important is because, and I'm sure most of you know this, we just see it all over the place, is that uh, church attendance in America has actually not been going up over the last 30 or 40 years. It's been going where? Down. And, and that is statistically proven. Uh, in two, 1983, a, a poll was done in which they found that about 32% of Americans were shown to attend church on a weekly basis. 32%. 
And, and by the way, that's, that's almost an all-time high back there in 83. And some of you are saying, only a third went to church every week? <laughs> no, many of you don't come to church every week, so let's stop judging. I mean, <laughs> and I know it because I, I see you, and, I, and I'm not judging that. I'm just saying, imagine going to church 52 out of 52 Sundays, uh, about a third of our population did back in 1983. But by 2006, this number had shrunk to 26%. So we'd gone from a third of the nation to a quarter of the nation in just 23 years that go to church every week. But interestingly, during this same time period, in 1983, 54% of Americans claimed to pray daily. Wow. Every day they claimed to pray to God in some way. By 2006, this number had risen to 59%. So, so don't miss this. In the same 23-year period, church attendance goes down drastically, but those who say that they're interested in God, even Jesus, and, and talk to Him daily has risen by 5%. And you got to ask, what's that about? And, and we know exactly what it's about. And that is, especially among younger generations, they're still very interested in spiritual things, even Jesus. They're just not at all impressed in what they see in the institutional church. See, that's what we need to wrestle with. And you might say, well, they're not being fair and all these things. Well, that's fine. The reality stands that, that they are spiritually interested, even interested in Jesus, but they don't like a lot of what they see in us. And, and I'll tell you, the, the, the issue is very complex. I mean, I'm not here to, to judge our church or anything like that. I mean, some people blame the sexual scandals within the Catholic Church. Some people blame the shallowness of the Protestant megachurch and how we become very entertainment-oriented. Other people blame the, 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 the lack of doctrine and clarity when it comes to orthodoxy. I mean, there's lots of things people point to. But you know one of the things that young people say, when I say young, I'm talking about people in their 20s, 30s, and 40s, younger than me. You know what I find that, that younger people say when I really push them on why they don't like the institutional church? Now, now dial into this. It, it's the pettiness that bothers them more than anything else. It, it's the fact that we're supposed to be majoring in the majors and minor in the minors, and we seem to bicker over stupid and small things, at least by their estimation. And they sit there and go, if that's what church is about, I just don't need it. I'm just not, don't have time to deal with that. And again, we see this happening all the time when it comes to young people. They're just fed up with institutional church politics, with institutional church pettiness, and quite frankly, they just don't see the love and the unity in us that they know intuitively, and even by the Bible, that we should have. So I love how Eugene Peterson in his memoirs from a couple summers ago, in his book, The Pastor, puts it when he describes positively what Christian community, what, what he calls membership in the church of Christ, membership should look like and be like. See if you don't salivate after this. Look up here on the screen. He says, being a church member is a vocation, a way of life. It means participation in an intricate web of hospitality, living at the intersection of human need and God's grace. Inhabiting a community where men and women who don't fit are welcomed, where neglected children are noticed, where stories of Jesus are told, and people who have no stories find that they do have stories, stories that are a part of the Jesus story. He says being a church member places us strategically, yet unobtrusively, at a heavily trafficked intersection between heaven and earth. And folks, I sit there and read stuff like that, and I just go, man. If any local church, if Scottsdale Bible Church and our Cactus Campus and our venue could ever get to the point where those poetic words describe who in essence we are, look out 
There would be absolutely no stopping us. Amen? We would not have to order a bunch of four spiritual laws. We wouldn't have to get 10 times more missional. We wouldn't have to have evangelism training classes. I'm telling you, when the church gets unified, when they major in the majors, when they rally around Jesus Christ and not programs, not songs, not music, not pettiness, but Jesus and him only, I'm telling you, that is the core of the witness. That is the core of the power. People look at that, and they go, I want to be a part of that. And that excites me. I I don't even know Jesus, but I don't get that at IBM. I I don't get that even at the Kiwanis. I don't get that at other places. If that's what this place is about, I'm interested in what you might have to say. Because that's what it's saying there in Galatians, that when you and I can become one in Jesus and put everything else aside, there's absolutely no stopping us. We're never the same again as a community of faith. You know, I I, want to be careful how I say what I'm about to say here right now because I know it's mildly prophetic, but... (laughs) I think there's a challenge in all of this for our church. Our our church last year turned 50. Your senior pastor, as I keep lamenting, next January turns 50. Uh, A lot of our people in our church are over 50. Ted Olson in his book, The American Church in Crisis, calls that the triple threat. He says if your pastor's over 50, your church is over 50, and the average age is over 50, you better have a plan to get younger people in it because you've already crossed over the edge that most churches start to decline. And so our elders and myself are very, very aware of that. We're also aware that it's going to be our love and our unity, our authenticity, our doctrine, all that mixed together that's going to allow us to move on with our Compelled by Grace campaign in a way that will allow us to reach out with greater and greater effectiveness. But i got to tell you, the challenge for us is we got to get over our pettiness. I'm telling you, we do. I met somebody again this week who was asking me about our, our Compelled by Grace building project, and, and I didn't say this to him, but I, I knew he left our church over this. And I got to tell you, I walked away from the meeting just going, oh, really, explain to me how you have a conservative Bible-believing church that you've been at for a decade that loves Jesus Christ, that has very pure doctrine, that is passionate about reaching lost people, that has great Sunday school classes, lots of small groups, plenty of service opportunities, that, that preaches the word, that has different styles of worship, and yet because you don't like the building project, you're going to disassociate with them? I, I don't get that, folks. I don't get people that disassociate over music. I, I don't get people that disassociate because we change a program. I, I mean, honestly, I know I'm the pastor, and, you know, for years people said to me, or they, they say, well, you wait, as you get older, you'll understand. Hey, I'm getting there, all right? <laughs> I am. I'm getting there. And I know I'm not 80 yet. But I got to tell you, I, I, I am old enough now where, where things that our church do, does bothers me. And I'm the senior pastor. This is a true story. I've asked Nick if I could say this. Nick, can I say it again? All right, good. I, I've said this before. That on Saturday night, you guys got to come on Saturday night. At Saturday night, right in the middle of worship, a fog machine comes out. All right? A fog machine. And I remember the very, very first time this fog machine came out. I'm sitting in a pew up there, and I just go, oh, my gosh. It's a fog machine. I go, I feel like I'm at an Aerosmith concert. This is terrible. It's terrible. And I leaned over my wife and I said, I can't believe it. Pat Sullivan had the greatest response. Pat said he thought that the tech guys were smoking up in the rafters, so, <laughs> which I thought was good. So this fog machine comes out, and I'm just going, oh, no, and I'm cringing and all this. So in our meeting afterward, I say to them, guys, what's with the fog machine? And obviously, I'm showing my age. And they said, and they, they really blew me away. They said, well, see, if you ever read Isaiah 6... It says that smoke filled the temple. I go, you're using the Bible on me? 
Smoke fills the temple. And they said, plus the fog allows the light rays to be seen. And then, and then they made me feel old. They said, you know, in younger, more engaging worship, they said, this is how a lot of 20s and 30s are starting to, to, to have an atmosphere where they can really connect with the Lord. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I go, I still don't like it. But you know what? We have a fog machine. Now, on, on, on Saturday nights, we do. Why, why do I allow a fog machine? Because I'm not going to disunify over fog. Amen? I'm not. And, and even when it comes out now, it's not my cup of tea. But I'm not going to yeah, clap at that. I'm not going to disunify over fog. And by the way, I tease our artists here all the time. I mean, I, you, know, you guys can you know Troy can do no wrong in my sight. He really can't. I am such a big fan of Troy. I meet with him every other week privately, and I have one question with him Who's bothering you, and how can I keep you happy? So I love Troy. And, and, and yet, they do things that I don't get. My wife walks in the other day, I know Cactus and, um, and Venue, if you can see this, but my wife and I came in the other day, and we noticed all this things here and that there, and Kim goes, what's with the stacked boards? And I said, honey, they're artists. I don't get any of it. <laughs> I said, somehow in a planning meeting, somehow somebody said, hey, let's stack a bunch of boards. Won't that help them worship? I don't know. But they do. And there's times where they'll say to me in our planning, hey, how'd you like the boards? I'm like, what? I didn't, until Kim pointed them, I didn't even notice them, which is not the right answer, by the way, but because <laughs> they're artists and they get offended. And, 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 and you know, there's times we're singing songs, and I know I'm getting older because the other day we were singing a song and it was just like loud. It was loud, and I never thought I'd say it's too loud. I never thought that would happen to me. But I walk back to Samba, and say, Kevin, it's loud. Turn it down a little bit. And I'm just going, listen to me. Listen to me. But see, here's my point in telling you all this. I love these guys. I think we have some of the greatest worship leaders, some of the most thoughtful worship people. Oh. <laughs> and yet my point is, I don't like the fog. I don't get stacked boards, and it's sometimes too loud. But you know what? I would never, ever disunify over something like that. Amen? It's just not worth it. It's just not worth it. And, and, and so I think that, but I think Satan's wily. And, and, I, and, and at times he gets under our skin and he causes us to get petty. I mean, he does that in my marriage, he does it in your marriage, and we, we get petty over stupid things. And, and finally you have to pull back and just say, in marriage our unity is found in our, in our I do's. And at church our unity is found in Jesus. And again, my point is, is if we can continue to get there as a church, I'm telling you guys, there'll be no stopping us with Compelled by Grace, redesigning our campus, doing multi-site, planning some churches. God will use this place to build his kingdom in such profound ways. So we have a new identity. We have a new unity. And then because we're really, really out of time, we've got to go to the communion table right now. Let me just give you the last one here because this might be very meaningful to some of you. And that is, as a child of God, you have a new hope. You have a new hope. Look at verse 29. It says, if you are Christ's, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Now here it is, heirs according to the promise. You have to listen to last week's sermon to fully get this, but last week I talked about Abraham and his covenant and how in God's covenant with Abraham, thousands of years before the time of Christ, he told Abraham, all nations will be blessed, for you, blessed through you. In other words, salvation will come to all people and it will come through faith. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So when Christ came, that became true. When Christ came, this was in accordance with stuff prophesied thousands of years earlier that now salvation was gonna come through Jesus Christ and faith in him to all nations. It's the Abrahamic covenant come true. But notice here it's adding another element to it. 
It says in verse 29 that when you and I become a son or daughter of God through faith, you are now a spiritual descendant of Abraham. Whoa. Complete with being an heir and all the benefits that go to it. And you're saying, like, what benefits? Well, God never left Abraham through all of his ups and downs. He's never going to leave you. God put up with all of Abraham's shenanigans. You can read about him in Genesis 12 through 25, and he's going to put up with all of your shenanigans. God accepted Abraham's faith in him as enough to credit righteousness to him and save him, and he's going to do that for you. All the things that, that, that tended to get Abraham down, I mean, he had problems in his marriage. His wife laughed at him. His kids didn't turn out like he thought. In fact, he had none by the time he was 100 years old. Uh, he, he had a frustrating job because he had this promised land he was supposed to inherit, but the only problem was it was filled with pagans. His emotions were all over the place. He went from discouragement to anger to joy. He was aging. In fact, it says at one point in Romans that his body was as good as dead before he even had his first child. So, you know, he was feeling bad about aging and all of that. And yet in Romans 4.18, in the midst of all of that, listen to what it says about Abraham, in hope against all hope, he believed. In hope against all hope, Abraham believed. So, so, so every time Abraham got hit by something this side of heaven, whether it be marriage, finances, job, emotions, his own flesh, he, he just hoped in God. And he said, God's promises are true. And what God says is that now as a child of his, you're also an heir to all that Abraham had, which means that hope is yours in every situation in life. Hope is yours. And that's all that some of you need to hear today. What some of you need to hear today is that though there's weeping in the night, joy comes in the morning. <laughs> that as you hang in there and hope with God, I don't know your situation, but as you do, I promise you, because his word promises you, as his child, he loves you, he's overseeing your life, and hope is alive in your soul. Dig deep and find it. It's alive in you by the Holy Spirit, along with a new identity, along with a new unity. Go back to where we started this morning, and we're going to wrap up with this. We started by saying that we have a... Uh, a, a, a birthing problem in the United States. We just don't have enough births. Here's what you need to know. God doesn't have a birth problem. God says, I got lots of kids. And if you're in Christ, you're one of them. He says, I got a lot more coming too. As people come to faith in Christ, he says, they become my child right at that moment. And he says, all my children have a new identity. They got a new unity. They have hope no matter what they're going through because you are highly loved and valued as a child of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word and how it always lifts us beyond the here and now to what our lives can and should be as we follow our Savior, Jesus Christ. And Father, we've learned here this morning that we really are new creations, as 2 Corinthians 5 would say, that as new creations, we're now children, sons and daughters of you with all the rights and privileges that go with it. So God, I pray that for any of us here today that might have walked in a bit beat up and discouraged by the week behind us, that we'd go into this week, Lord, knowing that our identity is rock solid, power, protection, and purpose at the core of who we are in Christ. I pray we would go into this week unified, God, knowing that we're not going to disunify with other Christians over anything unless it has to do with Jesus Christ. And that, Father, we're also men and women that now have a profound hope that we live from. And God, may that be very real for us. I pray, Lord, as we go to the communion table now, as cactus and venue go to the communion table, that, Father, you might be pleased with our worship. Encourage us now, we pray. In Jesus' holy and precious name, amen.